This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today, we are revisiting a 2012 episode featuring Anderson native and World War II battlefield hero T. Moffat Burris. Burris died Friday, January the 4th, 2019, at the age of 99. Today's episode of Walter Edgar's Journal includes a frank eyewitness account of the liberation of a Nazi concentration camp near the end of World War II. Some listeners may find this content disturbing. With me in the SCANA studio today are T. Moffat Boris, distinguished World War II veteran, filmmaker Leanne Carnegie, and Jeff Wilkinson with the state newspaper who has been working on the series that uh, SCETV has been airing on South Carolinians in World War II. So first of all, all of you, welcome to the journal. Thank you for having us. Thank you. First of all, I'd like to let everybody know that this is the second time I've had Moffat Boris on the journal. Back in 2001, his wonderful book, Strike and Hold, which is a memoir of the 82nd Airborne in World War II, had just come out. And that was the first year of the journal, Moffat, when you were on the show. And uh, that show has become what we call an evergreen. We run excerpts from that and have for the last 11 years. It was an incredible interview, and I want to thank you. At age 92, you don't look it. At age, Don't feel it. <laughs> for, for coming back to be with us. And it really is because, not just because of, of your book, which is very important, but Jeff Wilkinson, you have been part of the series that uh, SCETV has been airing on South Carolinians in World War II. Why is this particular show different, and what's it called? Uh, it's called Man and Moment. T. Moffat Burris and The Crossing. And the reason we wanted to do a separate film on this uh, from our, our series was that we really didn't have time to go into depth on any of the soldiers because we have so many. We're kind of telling the arc of the war mm-hmm. through the main series, and we wanted to get more close and more personal with with a couple of our soldiers who who were really outstanding during the war, and Moffat was one of those. And another reason was because after we interviewed him for the series, he told us, and this was in 2010, that he was going to Holland for the 65th anniversary of Operation Market Garden. And this crazy man was going to jump out of an airplane three days shy of his 90th birthday. And we thought we needed to go film that. And so uh, that was really the, uh, the basis for the, for, the, for the film, him returning and, and, and making his, I guess, final jump. I don't know, Moffat, are you going to jump again? Well, that's my most recent jump anyway. <laughs> okay. Moffat, why don't you tell us about that 65th reunion in Holland that you, that you attended? Holland, Nijmegen Holland, has an anniversary celebration every year. Some of the years it's more extensive than others. The 65th anniversary was the biggest one that they had, and the Queen was there, Prince Philip was there, uh, General David Petraeus and U.S. Ambassador, so it was quite an event. And uh, I guess as a sidelight, a good many of them came out to watch this old 90-year-old man jump on his two days, three days before his birthday. So there was a lot of celebration going on at that time. Okay. And Leanne, you there for the filming? I was there. I was fortunate enough to go to um, Holland and um, film Moffat. I was actually on the ground when he jumped. Heidi Meltreder was up in the plane with you, I believe. And so I was on the ground and saw him come down. And we got a, a really beautiful shot of him and a beautiful young woman that jumped with him. And uh, he made a perfect landing. And it was it was an extraordinary day. There was his family was there as well, grandchildren, and uh, a lot of folks came out to uh, celebrate. So it was it was a very special day. Jeff Wilkinson mentioned a few terms. We probably ought to uh, go into a little bit more explanation for our listeners. First of all, Operation New Market. Uh, Operation Market Garden. I'm sorry, Market Garden. Yep. Uh, 
after after D Day, the Americans and the British were uh, were driving the Germans pretty hard back into Germany. The Germans were in full retreat at that point, and I believe it was General British General Montgomery came up with the idea that he would make the largest paratrooper drop in history to secure bridges along a single road through Holland and then drive tanks up this road and across the Rhine into Germany and win the war by Christmas. It didn't go as planned. Although the Americans took the first two bridges, Moffat and the 82nd Airborne uh, took the second bridge, they never reached the third bridge in Arnhem. That was called The Bridge Too Far, and it was made uh, famous in the movie, which starred uh, Robert Redford. And so while Operation Market Garden liberated much of Holland, it did not uh, succeed in, in its mission of finally breaking into Germany through the back door and ending World War II. And Moffat could obviously go into greater detail about the operation than I can. So why don't you, from, from your perspective uh, as a young officer there in Market Garden. Let's talk about that. And also, there's a famous incident in the film where uh, Robert Redford pulls a pistol on a British officer, and that's you, right? At that particular point, he was playing my part. He was billed in the movie as Major Cook, who was my battalion commander. Everything he uh, did in the movie occurred, but not by Major Cook. I was one of them that uh, he played my part when we first reached the bridge. The British tanks, after we captured the north end of the bridge, the four British tanks came across. Uh, They were fired on, one of them knocked out, and the other three backed up to the bridge. And I went to the tank commander, who was Captain Carrington, said, why are you stopping? And he said, well, I can't go up there. That gun will knock out the rest of my tanks. I said, well, we'll go with you and get that gun. He said, no, I can't go without orders. About that time, my frustration was changing to anger. And I said, you go sit on your hind end, uh, and I'm cleaning the language up a good bit, I will have to admit. Uh, (laughs) I'm not a profane man, but I was at that particular moment. You're going to sit on your hind end here and let your troops in Arnhem be cut to shreds by those Tiger tanks up there. And uh, because of one gun, I just sacrificed half of my company in the face of dozens of guns. And I said, uh, you get this blankety-blank tank moving, or I'll blow your head off. I cocked my Tommy gun and put it to his head. With that, he ducked down in the tank and sat there all night and all the next day without moving. I couldn't get to him then. Well, you talked about losing half of your company crossing the Vol River. Describe that for our listeners, because you talk about being given a mission impossible. All right, well, back it up just a wee bit. My first objective was to capture the north end of the Grove Bridge. And uh, we landed exactly where we were supposed to. And in one hour's time, we had the uh, north end of the Grove Bridge, the longest bridge in Europe. And uh, then things quieted down until I got the call from my battalion commander, said, we are meeting up on the bank of the river in this tall tower and look over the river and make a visual reconnaissance of what's facing us. One of the generals have decided that we're going down three miles uh, west of the main highway bridge and make a crossing of the Wall River which 300 yards wide, length of three football fields, fast flowing, and was covered by 20 millimeters machine guns, mortars, artillery, and we were to go across it in canvas paddle boats, 17 men per boat, and in a boat that you wouldn't want to cross the Congaree River in. But uh, our job was to go across it in daylight in the face of that enemy fire. As we looked across up at the tower of this building and looked across, and there were two three-star generals, General Browning and General Horrocks, the two commanding generals in that operation, were up in the tower with us and looking at the situation. 
and explaining that our troops in Arnhem are being cut to shreds by German Tiger tanks, and if we don't get there in a matter of hours, all will be lost. So uh, we loaded in 26 boats, 17 men per boat, started to cross. They let us get about a third of the way across, then all hell broke loose. It looked like a hailstorm with the bullets hitting the water and kicking up little spouts of, of water. Then when we reached the far bank, the boats that did reach it, there were about 40 of them that were able to fight, and I yelled to them and said, when I give the word, follow me and head straight for the dike and don't stop for anything. So uh, they all charged right straight into that crisscrossing machine gun fire to the dike that was just loaded with machine guns. and how anything could possibly get through it, you can't imagine. But 17 of us did and reached the dike, knocked out the machine guns that were up there, and then headed east to the main bridge. And as we were going up to the main bridge, we started coming to houses, and I said, let's check these houses. They're probably crouts in there resting, because it's customary that Half the men would be out on the line fighting, the other half would be trying to get some rest. And as I stepped up on the porch of the first house and opened the door, the floor was just covered with crowds, about 15 or so. One of them reached for his gun when he saw me, and I chucked a gammon grenade, which is a high-powered British grenade, into the room, killed all of the crowds in there, and then we continued and headed toward the highway bridge. When we got to the highway bridge, uh, the German troops there were just kind of milling around. They were not in combat formation. They were watching the firefight across the river, Nijmegen going up in flames. So I ordered my men to fire on them, and we did, and they immediately gave up. And in a matter of a few minutes, we had well over 100 prisoners that we that we had captured. Then we secured the north end of the bridge and put out defensive forces around there because we were expecting German counterattack, and we did have two of them which we repelled, and we secured the bridge. But that's where it stopped, and the British tank stopped there, and that's kind of another story from that point on. Well, I think I think we'll come back to that because, according to Jeff, a lot of our veterans, and you read the, the memoirs of general officers, there were some complaints about the way the Brits operated in the European theater. Indeed. The, the British had been fighting for a long time, uh, longer than the Americans had. They tended to be uh, a little more cautious. Uh, the Americans came in and they were hell-bent for leather all the time. And the Brits uh, had a tendency to lay down artillery barrages to prepare the battlefield for an assault and to move rather slowly. And they had this odd habit uh, at 4 o'clock every day of sitting down and making tea, which drove uh, people like Moffat crazy. <laughs> Well, when you talk about laying down the barrage, that sounds almost like World War I tactics. Yeah, it was in a lot of ways, uh, uh, World War I tactics. They lost a lot of guys, and they moved slowly. And uh, as I said, the Americans were very, very aggressive, uh, especially Third Army units and airborne units uh, that came in. They, they wanted to get to Berlin and catch that big boat home. Mm-hmm. And Moffat, uh, after you ran... Uh, the British officer back into his tank. The result of that was the troops at the next bridge were chopped up, were they not? That is correct. The British Airborne Division, 1st Airborne Division, and a Polish brigade jumped at Arnhem, which was 10 miles north of Nijmegen. And uh, there was a single road going from Nijmegen to uh, Arnhem. The British had secured with a small force of men the north end of the bridge in, in Arnhem and were just hanging on to it. They were being pounded by the Tiger tanks and having a lot of casualties. They were running out of ammunition. Virtually all of them were wounded, and uh, they were just hanging on by their fingernails. And the rest of their troops were seven miles away. They had been dropped that far away from from the objective, and the Tiger tanks were really working them over Mm -hmm. real well. But then when the British tanks that were in Nijmegen were supposed to go on to uh, Arnhem and they backed up and 
had, had stopped and wouldn't wouldn't go forward. I would say this, had that been Patton instead of the British, he'd been in Arnhem in one hour's time. No question in my mind about it. Okay. The British just fought a different kind of war. They wanted to fire away for a few hours or a few days and soften the enemy up, and then move forward slowly, as Jeff just mentioned. And we didn't have the luxury of that time. How did the Dutch people react to the Americans? Dutch people were the most gracious people I've known in the war. The Dutch underground helped us in the fighting in any way that they could, and the civilian population there were very, very cordial. They helped in any way they can, not only when we were there in the war, but at each anniversary thereafter. Okay, and how many anniversaries, you you talked about the, the 65th anniversary a couple of years ago. How many anniversaries have you gone back to? I guess about a half a dozen. Half a dozen. Yes. Any members of your company still around? There are five officers left out of the original complement of about about 40-something officers in a battalion. Right, okay. And of those 40, there are five of them left right now. Okay. Uh, any of them in the, in the South Carolina area, or are they scattered all over? One in North Carolina, one in New Jersey, one in Texas, and one in Florida, and I'm here. Uh, do you all keep in touch? We do. We keep in touch by telephone, and we used to have a reunion of uh, our battalion every year or two up until about five or six years ago, and now they're all getting too old. <laughs> And nobody's jumping out of airplanes but you, right? I'm the only one that's left. For the 75th anniversary, there were five of us that jumped, and uh, I'm the only one that's left. The other four have passed away. Okay. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today, we are revisiting a 2012 episode featuring Anderson native and World War II battlefield hero T. Moffat Burris. Burris died Friday, January the 4th, 2019, at the age of 99. You know, when we're talking about Market Garden, we're talking about Europe, 1944. Let's talk a little bit about you growing up, Moffat Burris, a boy from Anderson, South Carolina, and how you got from Anderson to Holland. <laughs> well, uh, I did grow up in Anderson. I was one of three children. Uh, I have a brother, an older brother and sister. I uh, graduated from Clemson in 1940. And, of course, at that time, jobs were few and far between, and uh, we were still in the tail end of the Depression. I got a job as a teacher of physics and science at Orangeburg High School and was there for a year and a half when the war broke out. Well, I had received a commission as a second lieutenant uh, from, from Clemson and was in the reserves, so I was immediately called up, and on January the 9th, I was sent to Fort Benning, Georgia, for a refresher course there, and that's when I joined the paratroopers. I saw them floating down, and they looked good. I got 100 bucks a month extra pay for jumping, mm-hmm. and my school teaching salary was $85 a month, <laughs> so that $100 looked awfully big, so I jumped on that, and... Uh, graduated from parachute school in June of 42. Okay. And when did you ship out to Europe? In uh, April of 43. I took a basic parachute training at uh, Fort Benning and uh, parachute combat training at Fort Bragg. Okay. And then when did you head out to Europe? Well, we landed in Casablanca in April of 42. So uh, 43, went, I mean. So you went to Africa first. Went to North, North Africa. Africa, right and uh, moved across North Africa, and our first combat mission was the airborne drop in Sicily. Okay. Well, let's talk about that, your airborne drop in Sicily. Well, that was a night jump. Uh, We had not had a whole lot of practice and experience in night jumping. And the plane that I was in ran into anti-aircraft fire, and the formation split, and my plane dropped us 55 miles from the drop zone. Ooh, ooh, okay. <laughs> uh, that's uh, kind of what we said, too. We said, where are we? And uh, so I got together with two other men in the plane, the 17 men 
for a plane. I got together with two others, and as we sat beside this rock wall at the edge of a grape vineyard trying to figure out where we were, we heard this foreign talk, looked up the road, and there was a company of Italian uh, soldiers marching down the road, rifles slung across their shoulders, totally unaware that we were there. And I looked at the other two and I said, get your grenades out. And uh, I said, we got a choice of running or fighting. And I said, we came to fight. So when they got even with us, we chucked grenades, a barrage of grenades into the midst of them, caused a lot of casualties and a great deal of confusion. And what was left of them took off one direction and we took off the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> and they went down to the pillboxes along the beach. We were just a one mile, less than a mile from the beach. And uh, went down and got all of the Italian troops that were in the pillboxes lining the beach said, there's enemy behind the line, uh, let's go get them. So they all left their pillboxes and were up hunting those three lost paratroopers, and the uh, British Seaborne Force landed without a shot being fired. <laughs> so I guess you could say we wound up with a, an unplanned diversionary attack. It's undoubtedly saved a lot of British, British lives. Well, how did, you, how did you meet back up with your unit? We went along fighting with the British. When the British came in, first of all, the reinforcements from the Italians had us almost surrounded and spotted us. And uh, I looked at the other two and I said, it looks like our first night in combat might be our last unless a miracle occurs. And it did. An artillery barrage came in. British came in behind them. We stood up and said, hey, we are Americans. Well, they almost shot us. They thought we were, thought it was a trick, thought we were Germans, but we finally convinced them that we were Americans. And I can remember the British sergeant saying, if you'd have said you was a Yank, I might have believed you. And I said, well, you'd have had to shot me first because I'm not a Yank. I'm a rebel from <laughs> South Carolina. <laughs> so we went out fighting with the British for a while, and then they sent us back to Africa with a load of Italian prisoners. And we radioed back to our base station. They came and picked us up. And then when the campaign in Sicily was over, the rest of our regiment came back to Africa, and we loaded up and prepared for the next mission. But one other thing that occurred during that, my battalion jumped the night just before the invasion the next morning. And two nights later, the remainder of the regiment came in, two battalions, and they flew right over the beach. And the Jerry's were bombing the, our beach and our ground anti-aircraft fire and ships were firing at the Germans. And they, as they went out, our planes came in right over the seaborne landing. And uh, we had friendly fire, so-called, that shot down 29 of our planes and killed uh, 500 men. So that was a real tragedy of that war. That was in Italy, is that right? That was in Sicily. Sicily, okay. All right, now I need to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and my guests today are World War II veteran T. Moffat Burris, state newspaper reporter Jeff Wilkinson, and film producer, director Leanne Kornecki. Moffat, before we had our identification for our listeners, we were talking about your being in Sicily and North Africa. How did you get to North Africa? Troop ship? Troop ship. It's called George Washington. First trip since World War One. So you're dealing with a World War One ship. Right. And where'd you sail from? New York. New York to Casablanca. Casablanca. Mm-hmm. And then when you went to, to England to get ready for D-Day, Troop ship again? Yes. Okay. Folks need to remember that the whole time you're on these old ships, the German U-boat wolf packs are out there doing their best to send you all to the bottom of the Atlantic. They're out sniping at us, yes. Yes. Okay. Leanne, how did you get involved with this project? Jeff Wilkerson from the state paper was doing some um, work on World War II veterans. We were writing articles for the paper, as well as working for the ETV endowment. And he was um, needing some help with producing and videotaping 
of the veterans. So he called me, and um, so I've been helping with interviewing uh, the World War II vets. But when the Moffat Burroughs project came along, I was particularly interested in that too because I knew that he had been in Holland. My father was a World War II vet as well, and he passed away several years ago before we started this project, so I didn't have an opportunity to get his stories on on tape, which I, of course, regret. But it was, so it really sort of became a, a very personal thing for me to, to go and follow Moffat over to Holland and see some of the same locations that my, my father was in. And also, I think Moffat... Our families went to the same church together here in Columbia, South Carolina. So my dad had had mentioned his name over the years, and I knew him as sort of a local World War II hero. So um, had heard Moffat's name and was very interested in being on this project. So that's sort of how it began. And when you were there with him, you saw how the Dutch reacted to this boy from Anderson, South Carolina who had fought there in the Netherlands. Yes, the Dutch people were very, very appreciative and gracious to the vets that come back for these commemorations. And when I was there for the 65th anniversary, they came out in droves to celebrate, to watch him jump out of the plane, to... Um, they had a big celebration. They shut down the town. The, the, the Queen of the Netherlands was there. Prince Philip was there. And they, uh, as, as Jeff says, they treated them like, uh, really like rock stars. They are just elated to have them uh, in their presence again. And so, so grateful and thankful for what they did um, to, to help save them back then. You know, they were, they were starving and, and desperate when uh, the U.S. came in and um, the Brits came in, and so they were, they're very, very appreciative, and you can see that in these folks that come out for these celebrations. Jeff, were you there too? I was. Okay. Uh, I had the best job. I didn't have to shoot. I didn't have to do anything except talk to the vets and, and, and really enjoy the experience. And uh, I don't know, seeing Moffat. Uh, jump out of that airplane at 90 years old. It was just one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen in my life. Now, he didn't jump out by himself. He jumped tandem. So he was strapped to a female Dutch paratrooper. And I don't know whether he was more excited about jumping out of the airplane or being strapped to a female Dutch paratrooper. She was six feet, two inches tall. Very attractive also. He very much enjoyed that. Uh, on, seven, on the 50th anniversary celebration, I jumped solo. Mm-hmm. Okay. He, had, he had a big smile on his face, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and, it, you know, it sounds, we laugh about it, but it was a dangerous thing. I mean, you know, he's 90 years old, he's a little, who was the guy that jumped with you? Who was the other guy? Uh, Francis Keefe. Uh, I talked him into jumping so I wouldn't have to jump by myself. And he didn't fare it, it quite as well. He had a broken collarbone, a concussion, and, a sprained ankle, and oh. but he he came out all right. Yeah, Leanne and I were both on the ground when they came down, and and Mr. Keith landed right by me. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to raise your legs up and grab your knees, and then the paratrooper lands on the ground, basically catches you in in their lap. Mm-hmm. Well, Mr. Keith was not able to raise his legs and grab onto his knees, so they went face first with the paratrooper on top of him. So, you know, we, we kind of make light of it and we laugh about, you know, old guy jumping out of an airplane. But it's, it, 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 very it, it's very dangerous and it took a lot of courage from off to do that. At we H-9. didn't know at the time either which plane he was jumping out of or which parachute was his. So thankfully we, we caught the right, the right moment when he landed and all of his um, family and friends were there to, to greet him and to congratulate him. So that was wonderful. Now, Moffat, let's move on from Holland and the bridge to talk about some of your other experiences in the war. Can I can I say yeah. one thing before sure. you do move on about the the bridge and the the river there because sure, that's the location that that I was in when we were filming and um, that river is huge. It's enormous. I was I was in a boat crossing it because they redid the crossing as well. And the water is really swift. It's deep, it's swift, and it's um, very wide. And the just being there and seeing that that water and how rough it was, 
um, and imagining these very, very young men. You were, what, 20 or 21? I was 24 when we started across the river and had a birthday. Uh, when I hit the other side, I was 44. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's amazing, that really, to think about these very young men getting in these nothing there were canvas boats that they had to kind of put together when they finally arrived and they didn't have enough paddles they had to paddle with their rifle butts they had no training in paddling a boat they it was just get in and do it in broad daylight under enemy fire and to sort of be there on that water myself and imagine these guys doing that. It was a mission impossible. It was a a suicide mission, as you have said before, and uh, just the courage that they had to cross. It's very inspiring and amazing that they they did it and survived. It's something to behold, to to actually see that and be there and um, know what they must have gone through. I will say that of the 26 boats that started across, 11 of them made it. And uh, in my boat, uh, there were three killed and seven wounded out of the 17. And that was about the average in most of the boats. And the assault wave, the two companies, I and H Company, that, that initially went across. And you said that you lost half your company. Right. I was... I was one of the ones that was wounded, but not to the extent that I could keep going before I went to the medic two days later, had the shrapnel removed. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today we are revisiting a 2012 episode featuring Anderson native and World War II battlefield hero T. Moffat Burris. Burris died Friday, January the 4th, 2019, at the age of 99. Moffat, let's go from the bridge and talk about the rest of your time in Europe before you came back home. We were in Holland for a period of two months. Then when we left there, we went back to uh, France for R&R. And uh, we'd been there just about three weeks, and the Battle of the Bulge started. That was Hitler's final effort to try to have some significant impact on American troops. He had all of his uh, uh, tank force and and uh, best of his troops to hit a weak spot in the American lines and made a breakthrough. And the weather was just absolutely horrendous. We had two foot deep snow, bitter cold, sub-zero, not sub-freezing, but sub-zero weather, and we were not adequately dressed for it. Of course, reinforcements were brought up immediately. Patton got there. We knocked out bridges over the canals, and there again we were fighting tiger tanks with rifles and hand grenades, and that's not an easy task, I can assure you. But anyway, we we stopped them, and then Patton got there and started pushing them back. After the Battle of the Bulge, we were moved down just northwest of Cologne and what was called the Ruhr Pocket along the Rhine River. And we were, the Germans were on one side of the Rhine, we were on the other, shooting back and forth at each other. And uh, We made a couple of boat crossings there. My company made one crossing and this one was going to be at night. And I thought, well, this is a nice change to be going across at nighttime. And Instead of daylight, and uh, when we got about a third of the way across, all these flares went up and lit it up like daylight, and uh, my boat was fired on and sunk, and I had to swim back. But the majority of my company got across and rescued another company that was over there and gotten surrounded and wiped out the Germans, and so we had a very successful mission in recovering them and inflicted a lot of casualties, and then we sent our whole unit across. The German resistance was beginning to really crumble then. We were across the Rhine, we were on German homeland territory, and uh, so they were really falling back. Then that's when we were loaded on trucks and sent to just east of Hamburg, 
getting up close to the back door of Berlin. And as we traveled and we got close to a town called Woblin, we smelled this peculiar odor and it kept getting stronger and stronger. And when we came into the edge of town, we saw this barbed wire enclosure with uh, several real long, low buildings in it. And, and people walking around out in the yard that were just human skeletons with skin stretched across their bones. The guards had disappeared and the gates were still padlocked and I shot the lock off with my pistol and we went in and they were very afraid of us at first. They didn't know whether we were friends or enemies, the ones that were still living. But the conditions there were just beyond description. You you can't possibly describe how horrible it was. They had been systematically starved to death over a period of time. They were thrown in mass graves. There was a big ditch 10 feet wide, eight or 10 feet deep, a couple hundred feet long, bodies thrown in it, some of them still wiggling. The bodies in the buildings were stacked two and three feet deep on the floor. No sanitation, no water, no food. You just can't imagine the situation. Then we went into the town of Ludwigslust and uh, made all of the civilians come out and go through that concentration camp, dig up the bodies, and rebury them in the town square. So they got a real dose of what it was like. And initially, did they uh, explain to you or tell you they didn't know anything was going on? They did. We said, how, how could you allow this to happen? Well, we didn't know it was happening. We thought it was a work camp. But you but you mentioned the smell. Yes. Which uh, other veterans who liberated camps have talked about, that the odor was just overpowering and you could smell it. I had to use a gas mask to go in the building. Mm. One story, one little story I want to tell you that's a very moving story and uh, I generally get choked up when I when I tell it is I had a man that was assigned to my company, a young man about 18, was assigned to my company just a few days before we went into that camp. And he was a young Austrian Jew. When the Germans came into Austria, they took all of the able-bodied people and hauled them off, supposedly, to a work camp, but it was to an extermination camp. And he put up resistance, and they beat him and left him for dead. He recovered, escaped Austria, got to the United States, enlisted in the army, got in the paratroopers with the sole purpose of getting back over to Europe and seeing if he could find his parents. And uh, so when we got to the concentration camp, we started asking people. He, he and I were together, and uh, he was my interpreter, and uh, asking people if they knew his family. And finally, we got to a priest and asked him, and he said, well, son, I don't know how to tell you this, but your family was put to death just a few days ago. Mm. If you've ever seen a look of devastation on a kid's face, it was on his as he slumped to the ground and uh, started crying, and I sat down beside him and I cried with him. Mm -hmm. Oh, incredible story. Still after all these years. Moffat, that's something that the other veterans, Jeff, Leanne, who participated in, in the liberation of the concentration camps, that seems to be a searing memory that none of them can forget and none of them wants to forget. Yeah, and and it's just been recently that uh, a lot of these veterans have started talking about it. Now, in the fourth episode of our series, which uh, was called Liberation, and we spoke to uh, 30 veterans or so, as well as Holocaust uh, survivors, and um, a lot of them are telling the stories now because they want people to know that it really happened, because there are still some people out there that deny the Holocaust existed. And these guys uh, want to set the record straight for future generations, because they were there and they saw it, and it was one of the worst things they'd ever been through in their entire lives. When you were talking, I could see Moffat nodding. He, it happened. It was real. The whole no time. question about it. Yeah. 
uh, how anyone could deny it is just absolutely incredible. But it was the most horrible situation I'd ever seen. I'd seen men in my own company with the arms and legs blown off and blown apart and killed. I thought I'd seen the worst of war. I had not until I saw that concentration camp. What happened to the young man who was with your unit? You know, I do not know what happened to him. I've I've tried to track him down, but I have not been able to to find him. But he survived the war. He stayed with you. He survived the war, yes. See, that was that was the last of the real fighting right right then and there that the enemy resistance had crumbled and it was more or less a mopping up process at that particular point. After that and the burial we were in Ludwigslust right on the banks of the Elbe River. Okay. Ready to go to Berlin. And uh, we could have been in Berlin the next day. And we were all excited and all beefed up. We're going to be the first Americans uh, in Berlin. And then orders came down from headquarters that a political decision had been made that the Russians were going to take Berlin and for us not to cross the Elbe River. Well, after sitting on the banks of the Elbe all night, I kind of got itchy britches to say the truth and uh, got a jeep and a lieutenant and a sergeant and I said, let's go see what's on the other side of the river. So we got in the jeep, took off, drove five miles, 10 miles, 20 miles, drove 45 miles and ran head to head into a German armored corps with just hundreds of tanks and trucks and jeeps and about 15,000 men. Well, we both stopped and I got out and went to their lead jeep. There was a German captain there that spoke English and I said, I'm here to accept your surrender. Uh, he looks around and said, three men in a jeep, are you crazy? I said, no, I have a whole army of paratroopers and tanks right behind me and the Russians right behind you. You want to surrender to them or to us? And he said, wait a minute. He went back a few vehicles and came back with the lieutenant general. And uh, I told him the same thing. His reaction was he put up a little resistance. And I said, face it, general. You got two choices, surrender to us or the Russians. War's over. You got nowhere to go. I said, we'll treat you like prisoners of war. The Russians, I don't know. He said, wait a minute. He had a little conference of about half a dozen officers, turned around and walked back to me and pulled his pistol out and pointed it right toward me. Then he turned it around with the barrel pointing toward him and handed it to me which was his way of saying, I surrender. Now, what did your battalion commander do when you told him that you had 15,000 prisoners of war? (laughs) (laughs) I told the general, I said, all right, have your troops continue to move forward. We'll set up checkpoints and disarm them, and I'll take you to my commanding officer. So I took him in to Colonel Tucker, who was my regimental commander, and I said, Colonel, this general just surrendered his corps to me. He said, his what? I said, his corps. He said, where are they? And I said, they're 45 miles on the other side of the Elbe. He looked at me with a kind of a frown on his face and said, Burris, what the hell were you doing over there? You know you had orders not to cross the Elbe. I said, you want me to take him back? (laughs) He said, no, we'll keep him. So anyway, all afternoon and night, they were coming through the area. We disarmed them. The next morning, I got my Jeep and two, two men and said, let's go see if we can beat the Russians. So off we go about 65 miles, and we run into a Russian division, most ragged-looking group you ever saw in your life. They had wagons and goats and chickens and dogs and uh, women and everybody all mixed in together. And we took a delegation of them back, had a party meeting of the Russians and the Americans. And uh, the next morning, I told the Russian colonel, who spoke English, uh, I said, I surely would like to see Berlin. He said, so would I. My unit went around Berlin. I said, well, I got a car, let's go. 
So he hopped in the car and off we went. I had two of my lieutenants with me. We got in there, rode around Berlin, and it was just a pile of rubble, you know, for the months and months of bombing from England. And uh, we went to the Reichstag building and were standing on the pile of rubble, and I remember thinking at that time, well, finally we made it. The war's over, we've won, and here's that little school teacher from the small town of Orangeburg, first American in Berlin. What a trip. Did you have a photograph taken by any chance? Anybody have a... I did not have a photograph of that particular one. I had a photograph with me and with the colonel in Berlin. But I looked up at the colonel and he just waved his arm out like this and said, what a glorious victory. And I said, yes, but at what a price. What a price. Now, part of this veteran story has been collecting photographs and some veterans had more photographs and letters than others. Did you have any particular mementos you brought back with you from your... Well, I had a camera with me, uh-huh. and I took a lot of pictures. The book, pictures that you see in the book uh-huh. are, are pictures that I took. I also have a PowerPoint presentation of my book, which has some pictures that were taken from the movie A Bridge Too Far, but most of the pictures I, I, I took myself. And of course, Lou Ann has taken some pictures, and Jeff took some when they were over there. I'll tell you. Let, let me tell you one funny little story. If I back, if I can back up to uh, Holland, they were having a reception in Holland for the Queen, and I was at the reception. I was standing talking to General Petraeus. This strange guy walks up, and Petraeus introduces me to him as uh, to Lord Carrington. I said, oh, we know each other. We met on the bridge 65 years ago. <laughs> Carrington looked around and he said, oh, you're the chap that called me a yellow-livered coward. <laughs> I said, is that what I called you? He said, yes. And you didn't expect me to take orders from a foreign government, did you? I said, absolutely, I did. Then it went on to small talk from there. And it's one thing he remembered. <laughs> Yeah, we were very fortunate in this particular film that on Operation Market Garden that Moffat did have a camera with him and had some great photographs of him in the different arenas and um, that was that was a nice plus for this film. Well, I keep thinking about your grandchildren. You know, they can show the take their friends to see the movie and say, Robert Redford is portraying my granddad. I mean Nobody can possibly top that. And Robert Redford's not quite as handsome as Moffat. <laughs> well, Robert but Redford he did got okay. a million dollars for seven minutes in the movie, and they were <laughs> shooting blanks at him. <laughs> I, right. I, I got, I got right. about 600 bucks for two months, and they weren't <laughs> shooting blanks at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. One other thing I, I think that... Uh, might be worth mentioning because it's, it, it's uh, important to me. On the 65th anniversary celebration, when we were over there, I was awarded the Nijmegen Holland Medal of Honor, which is the, the highest award, the only Fantastic. one that was given to an individual in World War II. So I was really pleased with that, not because of anything I did, but for what my men did. Mm-hmm. They were the ones that did the fighting. They were the ones that did the suffering and, and the ones that died. And I was proud to have received it on behalf of them. It was well, a very special honor. Very, a very special honor indeed. And folks, I hate to say this, but Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Jeff? Uh, the film is called Man and Moment, T. Muffet Burris, and The Crossing. And it's a side project of our main series, which is called South Carolinians in World War II. Leanne Cornegie, any last words from you as the filmmaker, producer, director? Well, just that it's been a complete honor to uh, work on this project with Moffat and uh, to get to know him a little bit and um, to uh, sort of become more aware of of the courage and the the battles that took place in World War II. I was never a, you know, World War II buff or anything, but it's got me hooked. Okay. And and Moffat Burris, anything you'd like to add before well, we start? Well, Walter, I'd just like to say thank you to you and to ETV and to Jeff and to 
Luann, for the part that you played in putting this all together. I think you've done a magnificent job, and you're very kind to do it, and uh, I thank you. Well, sir, you're quite welcome. Thank you all for being with us today on The Journey. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. A 2012 episode featuring Anderson native and World War II battlefield hero T. Moffat Burris. Burris died Friday, January the 4th, 2019, at the age of 99. T. Moffat Burris, what a man, what a hero. This boy from Anderson, South Carolina, had more than his share of adventures. Operation Market Garden, which liberated Holland, crossing the Elbe, accepting the surrender of 15,000 Germans, meeting up with a Russian colonel, and standing on the ruins of the Reichstag in rubble-filled Berlin. Quite a story. Quite a man. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.